1: opening day, Major League Baseball being rolled back, uh, certainly here in New York with the Mets because of COVID-19 protocols. New York City's Health Commissioner warning residents to take precautions during the Eastern Passover holidays as the city's COVID-19 cases remain stubbornly high and more contagious variants surpass 70% of them. And then we talked about Pfizer and BioNTech's uh, COVID-19 vaccine remaining more than 91% effective after six months, according to some data from a final stage trial released uh, uh, today. We've got a perfect voice to talk about it. Dr. Amish Adalja, he is an infectious disease physician, senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Adalja on the phone from Pittsburgh. Dr. Adalja, nice to have you here with Tim and myself. So much to talk about, but let's start with Pfizer and finding that six months out, it still seems to be working and keeping individuals safe when it comes to COVID-19. This feels pretty big.
2: Yeah, I think it is. It's good news, and I think it's something that we all expected to see because most vaccines do have durability that lasts, you know, a year or even more than a year. If you think about some some vaccines, like our tetanus vaccines, it's just that when you're doing all of this in the midst of a pandemic, you're you don't have time to do the natural history studies ahead of time to know when immunity may wane when you might need a booster so what's going on now are these natural history studies and i suspect that nine months will we'll hear that it works well at nine months and we'll hear that it works well at 12 months uh, and i think that's that's to be expected and it makes it uh, a lot it gives people a lot more certainty especially as guidance starts to change for what vaccinated people can do
0: so dr adult does that change the way you're thinking about a potential booster that people who get this vaccine might need a booster at some point in the future
2: Yes, I think it's too early to say when we might need a booster. And remember, we have different boosters for different vaccines. So a tetanus shot, you get your booster every 10 years. And there are other vaccines where you might get a booster in a shorter period of time. Uh, So, for example, you get one dose of the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine around 12 to 15 months, and you get another one around five years of age, and then you're done. So it's, it's different, and it's really based on doing those studies, watching antibodies, watching T cells, looking to see do people get reinfected, And then you make a decision on when a booster might be needed. But I think we're likely not going to need a booster for at least a year and probably more than that. There's a separate issue about variants and updating the vaccine, which is a a different issue that sometimes gets conflated with the whole booster issue. But I think it's too early to say, hopefully it won't be something that an annual thing. Maybe it's biannual. Maybe every three years, every two years, we'll see.
0: Well, the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine is one of two mRNA vaccines that has emergency use authorization here in the United States. The other one comes from Moderna. It does feel like we're we're getting more data from Pfizer at this point. Are you seeing Moderna data out there? Or should we think about this being a similar result that we'd see from Moderna? I mean, can we think that way?
2: I do think you can largely extrapolate what's happening with the Pfizer vaccine to the Moderna vaccine because they are very similar. They're identical technologies with very similar ingredients, so most things are going to apply to both of them. But obviously, we want to see the Moderna data as well because these are two separate products, and there'll be two separate um, recommendations that, that could be. Could result if there are any discrepancies, but I don't expect to have any kind of surprises with the Moderna data after we've seen the Pfizer data.
1: Dr. Adalja, you know, for someone like me who watches financial markets and economic cycles and have for many years, you know, there are uh, there are ups and downs and there are cycles that are shorter, longer. When you look at the virus and COVID nineteen cycle, where do you think we are?
2: I think we're in an interesting situation. So we're basically in in a race between vaccines and this virus, and we've done. A very good job at getting vaccine into high-risk individuals, nursing home residents, high-risk community dwelling people. And that's sort of changed the way we have to think about this virus, that we still have a large proportion of the population that's not vaccinated, but we've removed the ability of the virus to really compromise hospitals because of the way we rolled out our vaccine. So if you're vaccinated now, you're unlikely to be hospitalized, and we gave the vaccine to those people who are most likely to be hospitalized. So what I see is a decoupling of cases from hospital hospital capacity concerns and I think that's going to take some time to get getting used to and I think people see these cases surging and they expect to see us get back in the same same predicament we were in in the winter but that's not going to happen because of where the vaccine went and that's that's where we are now the goal is really just to get more vaccine into those lower priority groups so that we see some decrease in spread but we're not going to get to COVID-0. We're going to kind of get to some some spot where where this is not a public health emergency anymore, where it's a much more manageable respiratory disease. And I don't know where that spot is, but when hospitals are not in crisis, I, for one, don't have the same worry as as I would looking at this number of cases. Just got like
1: 30, 30 seconds here, and then we're going to take a break and come back and talk some more. So we're never going to get to COVID-0?
2: No, it's very difficult to eradicate a disease. There's only ever okay. been one disease that eradicated from the planet, smallpox. And COVID-19, or SARS-CoV-2, is an efficiently spreading respiratory virus with an unknown animal host that's already spread into other animals like minks and cats. This isn't something that goes away. It's going to become an endemic respiratory virus, one that we deal with every year, but one that mm. never has the ability to threaten us the way it can now because of the vaccine.
0: Dr. Adalja we were talking and we'll be talking later to our colleague, Sarah Fryer, who, along with our other colleague, Sarah Kopit, has a new Business Week story all about anti-vaxxers and how Facebook is really allowing that information to flourish on the platform. There's this fascinating quote in here from Karen Cornblue, director of the think tank at the German Marshall Fund of the United States Digital Innovation and Democracy Initiative. She says, quote, the folks who are supporting the science have to get better at telling the story. And that's in response to the way that the scientists have been responding to anti-vaxxers and the misinformation out there. What's the best way for doctors to actually get the message out about the safety around this vaccine?
2: I think it's to really talk to each person that each patient that's in front of you and see exactly what their safety concerns are, and then provide them with that data. I think one of the one of the benefits of our all of Operation Warp Speed and all these vaccine trials is that we have so much data available, so you can basically address any person's safety concern. All of this data is freely available, and and there are a lot of resources for doctors to be able to talk to their patients. But I also think, you know, even when you're talking to the public, when you're in the press, it's really important just to stress that when you look at the safety data, it's really remarkable how safe this is. And it's not just the clinical trials, it's what's going on in the real world with the hundreds of millions of doses that have been distributed around the world. In the basic absence of any major safety signal that that that's concerning, and I think that's that's all you can do is really be as proactive about this and try and address concerns as best as you can, and not be in a reactionary stance where you're waiting for the anti-vaccine movement to come up with the latest conspiracy theory and then you're stuck rebutting it. I think if we present a positive case for this vaccine, you know the the data is is the best is the best salesperson for it.
1: But having, you know, medical people in my family, like every once in a while we're having a conversation and they get into medical speak and it's like, I'm sorry, I'm not stupid, but I don't understand what you're saying. And I think the messaging can sometimes be on a a different plane that doesn't reach people. So like you've got this incredible audience right now, and I know you often do on Bloomberg and on Quick Take, like what's what's the thing that you think you can say about the vaccines that are out there to kind of give confidence to people who maybe are holding off on getting the vaccine because they're scared?
2: What I would say is that I've been taking care of COVID-19 patients since the beginning of this pandemic. And I can see the benefit of this vaccine with my eyes. When I walk through the hospital, I worked at the hospital on Monday and Tuesday. I could walk around and I could see that it was a whole different place than, than it was just back in December when we were inundated with COVID-19. And what changed? The cases are still high. It's actually the fact that our vulnerable populations got vaccinated. And that vaccine has removed the ability of the virus to cause severe disease and death. I can also say that I have not seen any person present to the hospital with any kind of side effect or concern that put them that, that landed them in the hospital from the vaccine. I've poured over the data. I've, I've had to answer so many questions about so many different side effects that people may or may not have had or anecdotes and, and nothing has really panned out. And I think it's it's extraordinary how safe these vaccines are. And I think that... Even though we don't have long-term data?
1: Even though we don't have long-term data?
2: Yes, even though we don't have long-term data. I think it's important to remember that any time a vaccine is approved, we still continue to study the vaccine after approval. They do what are called Phase 4 post-marketing studies. They're still doing those studies for things like the HPV vaccine Gardasil. That's very normal. Uh, And and the thing is, we're in the middle of a pandemic where over 500,000 people died. Mm -hmm. I don't think there was any option of waiting six years down the road to say... Let's have six years of safety data before we release this vaccine. But then there would be right. people say, well, we need seven-year safety data. Or we need eight-year safety
1: data. Agreed. And I'm just playing devil's advocate. <laughs> you, already, <laughs> you already got. I've you... already gotten one, and I'm, wait- I, I'm gladly waiting for that second one. And I'm, just... <laughs> and I'm
0: set to get it this weekend, so I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, Dr. Adalja, we do still see, despite everything that you're saying, despite what the scientists and doctors are saying, we do still see hesitancy among some Americans. You mentioned herd immunity and that we need to get to herd immunity. What happens, though, if we don't get to herd immunity through the vaccine?
2: Well, I think if we don't get to herd immunity through the vaccine, you will still have a higher level of cases than anybody wants, probably in the tens of thousands range for some time until the, the population reaches herd immunity with a combination of the vaccine and natural immunity. The, to me, herd immunity is, is an important milestone, but I've always been very focused on hospital capacity, like I said before. So if we can get our vulnerable populations all vaccinated, and this isn't something that lands people in the hospital or kills them, it, it becomes much more manageable, even if we don't hit herd immunity through the vaccine, especially if that if the people that are vaccine hesitant are not the highest risk individuals. I worry about that the vaccine hesitancy kind of clustering in a group of people that, that might be at high risk for hospitalization. But I, I do think that the more vaccine we get into people, the more people that are accepting of this vaccine, the faster track we, we are on to to ending the pandemic and making COVID-19 something that is more like respiratory viruses that we deal with year in and year out. So it's going to be a major challenge when we become less supply constrained right. and more demand constrained when-
1: Well, so smart and so spot on in terms of the conversations I know I'm having out in public and certainly around uh, the newsroom and elsewhere. Uh, Dr. Amish Adalja, thank you so much. Infectious disease physician, senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Great conversation. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So makes you wonder, Tim, if anything is changing when it comes to social media. This next story kind of plays into that. It's about how Facebook is letting anti-vaxxers scare women from COVID shots. It's real. And I got to say, I know this firsthand based on the conversations I've been having. There's a lot of women, especially those who maybe haven't had children or are waiting to have their kids and they're worried about getting vaccines.
0: Look, this is something that's new to everybody right now. Yeah. And the science is playing out in real time as we talk about all the time. Joel Weber is editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, joining us on the remote from Brooklyn on the access line. Sarah Fryer is technology reporter at Bloomberg News, and she's the author of No Filter, the inside story of Instagram. Joining us now on the phone from San Francisco. Uh, Joel, this is a very concerning piece from Sarah Fryer and, and, and Sarah Copit, because Facebook, it seems, would have the power to stop the spread of this type of misinformation. And they've indeed changed the way that they're thinking about it, but it's still flourishing on the platform.
3: Well, and it it just speaks to a kind of the bigger Facebook story that um, Sarah has has been all over for for years now about just misinformation on, on on the platform and the you know the main metric of success for Facebook is engagement and um, even when things are outright lies um if people engage with them it tends to be something that that facebook uh, struggles to to figure out how to police and moderate and you know they they've kind of said one thing and and have necessarily not always done that in this particular instance and i and i do think it's a really fascinating sort of case study um because here we are in the middle of the pandemic people are getting shots and uh, or considering getting vaccinated and at a rapid clip now and yet we've actually seen and what in what Sarah's reporting shows is that women on social media and particularly on Facebook have been basically targeted by anti-vaxxers as and that has become really a, a devastating um, um impact so so Sarah talk to us a little bit more about what you found and, and why it's so troubling well this
4: anti-vax movement has been brewing for for years for other kinds of vaccines. Um, And with the pandemic, it's different because the first people eligible for these COVID shots are adults. So the normal rhetoric that they target young mothers with telling telling them not to get their kids vaccinated, they're targeting that same group but saying that uh, the vaccine is going to cause fertility issues. You don't know what the adverse side effects are going to be, and it's simply uh, not true. The problem is on Facebook, and, and we've talked about this over and over on this show as well. The stuff that spreads is that which sparks emotion; it's that which causes surprise and commentary. And although Facebook has done all these things, like you know, banning the worst offenders and trying to put up good vaccine information. They're up against their own system, their own their own uh, design that rewards that kind of behavior on their apps. And on Instagram it's, it's very pervasive too and I would even say a little bit worse. Um, the lead character of our story is this woman Khisse Williams, who was always a little skeptical uh, became more skeptical, I should say, of the medical establishment after going through cancer treatment. and when she joined Instagram, she got really into alternative health and natural wellness and through that went down the rabbit hole into learning a, this false information about how vaccines could cause adverse side effects um, that simply wasn't based in reality and on Instagram you have the effect of you know, the people that are are saying that are simultaneously trying to sell alternative supplements you know detox, right plans, it was, workouts, uh, whatever they can do is an alternative to what the government is, is selling um, via vaccine. So I really think that it's it's not a reliable source of good health information.
0: Well, Sarah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that I wanted to talk more about. And that was one of my takeaways, that there is actually this like anti-vaxxer industrial complex out there that stands to financially benefit from, from people uh, not believing the science.
4: Right. I think that, that again, it's, it's preying on the fear. And on Instagram, people have built their profiles. Influencers who are in wellness have built their profiles around giving you this idyllic path for your life, saying, you know, you if you just you do my juice cleanse or do my workouts, like, trust me, I, I know what to do. And you can look like me and you can have a life like me. And those personal stories, again, just like on Facebook and Facebook groups, personal stories resonate people trust people who who are intimate and emotional and and letting them into their lives and will buy things from those people whether it's um, buy into the anecdotes they're spreading or um, buy what they're selling um, in terms of wellness retreats and supplements. So I think that that it's important for people to understand that as we shift from this discussion about, vaccine supply, like, you know, who's eligible, when is it going to be distributed, to a a discussion about vaccine demand, um, once more people have access to the shot, this is going to
1: be a huge factor. So, Sarah, like, who's at fault? I mean, I feel like Facebook, you know, we learned a lot leading up to the November election about misinformation uh, on the platform. So do you fault Facebook for not policing it more? Or do people fault... uh, Facebook not you know for policing it not more or what about the science community and medical community for coming out with smarter messaging?
4: Well the medical community it's it's difficult because inherently doctors are not going to tell you things in absolutes there's there's a lot of nuance there there's a lot of technical background that needs to be to be told and on Facebook all, they have done a lot to try to improve their reaction. The problems, but they haven't done anything to solve. Like, they're solving the symptom and not the disease. Um, the yeah. symptoms being the the information that spreads, the people that have gotten famous, the worst of the worst. Um, the disease being just the very structure of the app, how it actually works, um, the way things are personalized. The woman I was speaking of earlier um, said, you know, the great thing about Instagram is once she finds some people who are you know in the world she wants to sell her essential oils to instagram just serves up more people like those people it's all about the personalization it's all about bringing people deeper into the communities that they want to interact with online because like joel said it's all about engagement and that is the fundamental problem
1: i love that aspect of it where you got into groups and the meaningful conversations and how that just provided so much more momentum um to these conversations uh, inaccurate ones and others uh sarah it's a great read it is so full of information smart information and understanding how this all works so i highly recommend that everybody check it out it's going to be featured by the way in the upcoming issue of bloomberg business week magazine you can read it now though on the bloomberg terminal and also at bloomberg.com/businessweek sarah fryer thank you thank you technology reporter at bloomberg news author of no filter the inside story of instagram great weekend reading i'm just going to point that out with us from san francisco jill weber editor of bloomberg business week You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. It is Thursday. It is the monthly jobs report eve. Uh, and back with us as an insider and an informed and insightful voice when it comes to all things Washington and politics and policy. Chris Liu is back with us. He's former Deputy Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration, worked up on Capitol Hill. He's actually worked in each of the three branches of the U.S. government. He was also executive director of Barack Obama's 2008 transition team, member of President Biden's transition team, and he is senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller, C- Miller Center. He joins us on the phone in Charlottesville, Virginia. Chris, so nice to have you here. How are you?
5: I'm great. Boy, That we have to shorten that
1: introduction. <laughs> I was going to say, sorry, we've run out of time. You have to stop being, you know, doing all these notable things. Um, let's talk jobs. How do you see it right now in terms of we knew the pandemic shut us down, we lost all these jobs, we're coming back, but uh, we're a long way from being there?
5: We are a long way. Uh, You know, the the consensus estimate for tomorrow is around 600 to 700,000 compared to last month, which was 379,000. I I think that's about right. I, I think when you look at the pace of uh, vaccinations, as well as reopenings around the country. People are starting to travel more, go out to restaurants. I think things are picking up, but it's important to understand what a big hole we are in. Let's, let's say we get, you know, 600,000 jobs created. Uh, we'd still be down about 9 million from where we were before the pandemic, and that's still far worse than we ever were at the height of the Great Recession. So we are in a really big hole and uh, we're kind of slowly crawling back out. Obviously, the economic relief package, the 1.9 trillion is important, infrastructure is important, but we're not out of the woods yet. I mean, we we could now are starting to see uh, COVID cases rise back up in the Northeast and Midwest. Um, Some states, I would argue, are opening too fast. And so it's kind of a race against time right now.
0: Can we get out of the woods, Chris, without another recovery package?
5: Well, look, it it sort of depends on what you think get out of the woods means. I mean, you know, what um, President Biden has talked about is build back better, which is the goal is not just to get back to where we were in February of 2020, but to really try to address some of the broader economic inequalities, not only just at the individual level, but obviously the continued underinvestment in infrastructure over the years, and that's across all administrations. So you know, look, I think we can get employment back to where it was eventually, but I do think the lesson we learned from the Great Recession is that unless we go big, the recovery takes much longer, people will suffer far longer, and I think that's the underlying theory about why the President and Democrats in Congress feel like infrastructure needs to happen.
1: That's a great point. Like, listen, this is not the same crisis as the financial crisis, right, Chris? But we did commit a lot of money right after the financial crisis to bring things back. But, if, but we let's not forget how kind of low and slow it was going uh, in terms of that recovery. Here we are, and we have an opportunity to kind of really make a difference for the current economy, but even more importantly, for the longer-term growth of the U.S. economy.
5: Exactly. And you know I, I think about the uh, Recovery Act that was passed in two thousand and nine when I worked for President Obama. That seemed really big at the time. And now you consider that just over the past year plus, we've done about five to six trillion of economic relief uh, just to get us out of Covid, and then potentially now another two trillion in this first round of infrastructure. So we're now looking at, you know eight, nine times bigger than where we went were, in 2009. And I think history has taught us that if we really want to get the economy up back up and running, but more importantly, create jobs, bring manufacturing back, and stay competitive with China, we need to do a lot more. And that's why there is so much in this infrastructure package and so many things, frankly, that again, if we could divorce politics from this, and that's obviously impossible to do, you'd find a lot of bipartisan support for not just roads and bridges, but broadband and school construction. These are things that people have been talking about in Washington for years.
0: We can't divorce politics from this, though. <laughs> and, and and that's that's the issue, that's right. right? Everything is, is political. Given that the Biden administration wasn't able to get a single Republican vote for the one point nine trillion dollar relief package, how does the administration push through a two point two five billion uh, trillion dollar infrastructure plan?
5: I think they're going to first see if they can find some support and some common ground. And uh, the White House chief of staff, Ron Klain, uh, did a talk today where, you know, he didn't immediately say we're going to go down and do the budget reconciliation route, which takes 51 votes, but he's going to try to, they're going to try to find bipartisan support. And that may be in, not in Washington, but they're going to try to at least make the case to the American people the way they did with the economic relief package, uh, why this is so important. and It's one of the reasons why that bill pulls so well. But I think ultimately, if you were a betting person, you'd say, It's unlikely Republicans would support this in light of the tax increases that are going to be part of this, which means you're going to have to go back and do that budget reconciliation process again.
1: Chris, just got about a minute, and then we'll take a break and come back some more. But I do wonder, how do you, from your experience of working in in, in the Obama administration, but also in Congress— like? How do how does public sentiment play into this? I mean, I think, you know, Americans get it when they get $1,400 or whatever it is back in their pocket, right? But do they kind of relate with a big infrastructure spending bill that might give them better internet or cleaner water? Do we relate well? Do we think about that when we go to the polls? And again, just got about 50 seconds here.
5: And it's hard because the evidence will show that it didn't translate to political support in 2010. I think what will be important is how tangible some of these things are. If people really do see their roads and bridges improve, really do see investments that affect their life immediately versus much, much further down the road.
0: The tough part is is this stuff doesn't happen immediately, though. These are infrastructure projects we're talking about.
1: No, but you, right right, Chris, it's a while.
5: <laughs> yeah, and I'm not sure like if we say we're going to modernize our electrical grid, anybody can ever notice that until right. we have a situation like, like Texas. We had in Texas. Yeah, exactly.
1: Hey, Chris, something I wanted to ask you, and I feel like this plays into President Biden's uh, infrastructure plan and spending, uh, is that when you look at A nation like China, and of course, very different from the United States, certainly in terms of its run, but it is planning for the future and making some big investments. And we had a a really smart story on the Bloomberg yesterday that talked about how China's COVID rebound edging it closer to overtaking the U.S. economy. I mean, they are doing spending today that will give it economic momentum in the future. When you look at U.S. versus China, what do we as Americans need to think about when it comes to whether or not we are first or second on the global economic scale?
5: Well, I, that's that's a big question, but what yeah, I say sorry. is that this infrastructure bill tries to get at some of this. Now, there's obviously not one answer, but, you know, a big investment into uh, school construction and broadband and job training Ensures that we have the workforce that we need for the 21st century. You know, there, there's about a quarter trillion dollars in this bill that goes for R&D, including to beefing up uh, our federal labs and the research facilities at universities, so that we can start innovating again and building the kinds of products that should be uh, th- that we've done, you know, uh, for all of the 20th century. And then the roads and bridges really is a kind of a critical part of. We want to start to manufacture more things in the United States we have to be able to transport that stuff efficiently around the country. And so there's not just one thing, it's a multiple things. And I think that's what this bill tries to do, as well as importantly, making those investments into clean energy like solar and wind, uh, which are areas that we are really in direct competition with China right now.
0: Chris, the fact sheet from the White House that came out yesterday about the American jobs plan, it mentions China five times. Is, is this the right way to position it to try to get some bipartisan support for the plan, positioning China as, as as one of the reasons as to why Republicans should sign on along with Democrats?
5: Exactly. And I, I do think that is oddly one of the areas of true bipartisanship uh, is, is trying to kind of uh, bash China, go head-to-head with China, however you want to characterize it. So I think that's obviously very deliberate. On the other hand, as we talked about in the previous segment, the fact that a lot of these investments will be paid for by rolling back the Trump tax cuts, I think will be so problematic for Republicans that even if there's a lot of things in here that would help make us more competitive, it won't overcome uh, their other objections.
0: So is there a better way to, to position paying for this because it's, it's anathema to, to Republicans raising, raising corporate taxes?
5: I, this is the problem I mean you know it became kind things of a cost money joke. <laughs> it, it, things cost exactly things cost money and this this became the running joke over the previous four years when we would have infrastructure every six months or so and when it came down to it the concept of infrastructure was good but if you really wanted to go big on the kinds of investments you need you got to come up with a way to pay for it you know I was struck by that annual survey that comes out every year about the, I think it's the the Association of Civil Engineers that evaluates our physical infrastructure. And this year, I believe we got a C minus, which I think was an improvement from where it had been, which is D plus for years and years and years. And so there's been a constant underinvestment in Democratic and Republican administrations. And inevitably, the reason is is because nobody wants to pay for it. And I would argue, and I think most economists would tell you, that we either pay for this on the front end or we're going to pay for this on the back end in terms of um, a workforce that's not well-trained, mm. roads and bridges that can't transport goods, uh, less innovation in our country.
3: Hey,
1: we've just got about a minute or so um, left here, Chris. One thing that we wanted to ask you is, um, It just feels like the last year we have just seen segments of our population targeted, whether it's black Americans, and most recently we're seeing Asian Americans targeted. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Are are you nervous as you move around society um, because of what we've seen as of late, uh, the hate crimes that we're seeing against uh, Asians in this country?
5: It's incredibly troubling, and it's consistent with uh, the – rather grim history of Asians in America, where uh, we have been treated as outsiders, people with dual loyalties, people who can't be trusted, really going all the way back to Chinese railroad workers Mm -hmm. and Japanese American internment. Obviously, the political rhetoric around COVID over the past year has really exacerbated the problem. And frankly, the issue that we just mentioned, China is going to continue to weigh on this. I would like to think that we can have a recent discussion about how the United States should be more competitive against China and actually confront them on intellectual property and their military aggression without the flip side of it being uh, more attacks and ostracism of Chinese-Americans and more broadly Asian-Americans. But unfortunately, the history in our country is that, mm. you know, when th- th- yeah. that has not been the case.
1: Yeah. History often trips us up on this in an unfair way and in a wrong way. Chris, thank you, though, for weighing in on that and so much more. Chris Liu, uh, Senior Fellow, University of Virginia Miller Center, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama, joining us once again from Charlottesville, Virginia. Chris, stay safe.
4: I'm
2: is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On
0: Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, just got about 10 minutes, a little bit under, no, just about 10 minutes left in today's trading session. Getting ready to wrap up the holiday shortened equity, I should say shortened equity trading uh, on this uh, holiday week. Let's get to John Trainer. He is back with us. Chief Investment Officer at People's United Advisors. $9 billion in assets under management on the phone in Bridgeport, Connecticut. This on a day where we saw the S&P 500 breaking above 4000 uh, And we're really seeing the bull market uh, barrel on. John, good to have you here. 4000 it's just a level, but it's just a reminder that stocks continue to move higher.
6: It, it, uh, thank you for having me back. And, and you're sure. correct. I mean, you know, hitting that number, you know, the numbers are, are you know, these psychological barriers, but it just shows you you know, the confidence that investors are gaining in the market, in the economy, and in the recovery. And, you know, it, it's great to see. It's great to see. And there's a lot of momentum behind that, behind that, that, uh, that, that psychology, that confidence.
0: Well, the confidence is there and th- that the reopening is happening. But how much higher can it go this year?
6: Well, you know, w- one of the things that we're, we're talking with clients about is, is, you know, it's great to see the averages moving but what we really want to see is a broadening of the market you know and you know you know last year was really you know if you didn't own the big 5 tech stocks you didn't participate well we think this year is going to be the story of the other 495 right. So you could do well this year and you not know, see the averages uh, go go through the roof, but you could do well if you do, you know, you had that broadening of the market, a broadening of the portfolio.
1: Listen, it's an economic recovery. I mean, whether we, <laughs> you know, right, this is what we're getting ready for provided we don't see another, you know, significant COVID outbreak that leads to a shutting down of the U.S. economy. But, I mean, I feel like, John, everything is pointing to a very, very strong second half. Having said that, how much of it do you think is already factored in to the overall trade?
6: Well, you, you hit the nail on the head. I do think a good amount of it is factored in. But, you know, just think about, you know, the recovery that we still need to see on Main Street. I mean, you know, the restaurants, one of the things we'll be watching for in the unemployment number tomorrow is how many people get rehired in the hospitality and leisure area. You know, those are the waiters and waitresses. So there's a, a lot of recovery that still needs to take place. And, and consumers, you know, they need to get out. They need to get outside. They Once they get get on, uh, you know, get back to Main Street, I think you'll see that flow into the market. So we, we still think we're, we're going to see these these uh, averages move higher.
0: Hey, John, where where does the... Economic stimulus package, and I'm not talking about the 1.9 trillion dollar one. I'm talking about 2.25 tr- uh, trillion dollar infrastructure plan that was announced yesterday. Where, where does that fit into this this picture?
6: You know, uh, we've taken a look at a couple of economic estimates, and and again, this is this is infrastructure spending. So this is spending that's going to be you know for years to come. I mean, it, it, you know, the planning of, of rebuilding bridges and and all that infrastructure needs to be done. One of the things that, that has, has encouraged us about the infrastructure plan is that we were concerned that we would have this spurt with the $1.9 trillion, a spurt in growth this year, and then slow down pretty dramatically in the out years. The infrastructure package, it's not causing us to change our forecast for this year, but we're raising our 2023 24 numbers because of that package. So it's, it's increasing our confidence in the out years.
1: So what's the risks here? What's the thing that we're not, you know, beyond the archagos or archagos, however you say it, uh, blow up, which didn't really impact the overall trade, but is a reminder that things can happen, um, you know, without our, our, you know, without us, you know, those black swans, they do happen, even little black swans.
6: That's right. Leverage in the system, you know, when you when you've got free money for as long as we've had it, and that's basically what we've had from the Fed for quite a while now. You know, mistakes are made when your when your hurdle rate is zero, everything looks good. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see if we don't see some more of the heavy heavily levered investors, the hedge funds primarily, have problems going forward because there are a lot of levered bets out there, and uh, we, I don't think we've seen the end of that. Um, so, yeah, the leverage in the system is, is, a, uh, is a concern, but, you know, the, the bigger issue, um, we, and we haven't seen it, investors in the bond market are basically still saying the Fed is going to do a good job and keep keep inflation under control. And well, that's, that to us, that's the big question mark. Our
1: Joe there. Weisenthal, I don't have the note in front of me, but puts out a note every morning about kind of the five things you need to know every morning. And one of the things he had a guest on recently that when you look at the activity, and forgive me, I'm not, probably not going to do the best summary, but it's basically this whole idea that, you know, back in January, things, everything was falling apart. We were looking at rising virus cases, looking at another wave. Uh, we didn't have all the economic recovery packages in place. And it felt like everything was coming undone. And then here we get, you know, trillions back into the economy. And we're now talking about crazy growth numbers for the second half. And the bond market is just reflecting that and did it pretty quickly. Is that something you think about and just got about 30 seconds to actually about 20 seconds?
6: Yeah, no, no. And and what we're looking at, yes, we've seen interest rates go up, but we haven't really seen, you know, the real rate go through the roof. Uh, And We believe the bond market, even though rates are moving up, the bond market is still saying the Fed is in control and they'll Mm. do a good job. Absolutely.
1: Hey, John, have a good weekend. Uh, Thanks for stopping by. John Trainer, Chief Investment Officer, People's United Advisors, uh, on the phone in Bridgeport, Connecticut.
0: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com.
1: And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search
3: Bloomberg Global News.